No, no, that's okay. No, I, I actually, I, I promise you, I was not looking for the required response, nor was I going to embarrass anybody by saying, I can't hear you, or some similar kind of, uh, similar kind of thing. Um, well, as we wait for next week when we will, I think, uh, with our whiteboard at the ready, began to think about um, how we can love and encourage each other to good works, which the Lord has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And we are going to do that for at least a couple of weeks, uh, beginning next week. And we're going to think about in that how richly God has blessed us uh, and the means by which we can share blessing. And what tends to happen when we talk about that is our minds immediately run to financial blessing. And that is certainly a means by which God blesses. But there, frankly, are many far more far more meaningful ways that God blesses us. And I'll also contend that there are precursors to financial blessings that if we don't understand them, then we will inadvertently tend to act unjustly in our culture. And we've talked about that a lot in terms of what we have learned and are learning and what we're seeing God's fruit in, for example, in Africa. As we have engaged in very paternalistic, um, uh, almost inadvertently smug, guilt-drenched, um, uh, inappropriate ways of dealing with our African brothers and sisters that, that were at best counterproductive. <laughs> That's the best thing you could say about them. And so we've talked about that. We've seen a whole video series that I think is one of the best things I've ever seen on that. Uh, and we won't rehash that. What we're going to be doing is trying to Count our many blessings, in effect. Name them one by one. See what God has done and look at the means by which we spread abroad God's love, that we tear down idols, that we, uh, that we engage our culture in a way that uh, doesn't have a pretense of being... Um, how do I want to say this, uh, utopian. We are fallen people. We all know that. We try to think about that in an appropriate way. And the world without Christ can't help but be broken. And so God calls us to urge the world to be reconciled to Christ, right? 
And that's what Paul spent probably weeks before he ever got to that Mars Hill sermon. Weeks standing there on that hill in among all those different idols, talking with the philosophers that would be related to these, to these, various, to these various idols. Peter Kreeft, uh, the uh, really neat uh, philosopher, uh, Catholic guy who wrote uh, the first book I ever saw by him, I was in a, uh, actually the first Christian bookstore I'd ever been in. We had, growing up and all of that, the Sunday school teachers went to, you know, at the time, 20th century Christian or gospel advocate or whatever, and they bought the class books and brought them back. And, and you know, I never, I never darkened those doors. Was in a Christian bookstore in Pasadena, California, and saw this great caricature. And I immediately recognized two of the people in the caricature. One of them was C.S. Lewis who I knew because I was a great lover by that time of his books. I began with his hardest one, which almost put me off of all of them, which is the problem of pain. And the first four chapters of the problem of pain, I was like, I was, I was like he describes in the four, fourth or fifth chapter when he talks about the pearl diver who, who dives down and it gets darker and darker and darker and he's in the muck feeling around on the bottom and he, and he grabs the pearl, and he comes up into the, into the light and, and holds up the pearl. I was the pearl diver, but, I, but, but for a different reason as I was trying to read that book. But I had grown to love C.S. Lewis, and I saw this caricature of, of C.S. Lewis and a caricature of John F. Kennedy. And there was another guy. Well, as it turns out, this book is called Between Heaven and Hell, and Kreeft has done a number of this type of book. They're very easy to read, very small, small format, and they create a dramatic situation. Uh, and the characters portray different worldviews, essentially, in these, in these books. Socrates meets Jesus, uh, places a sort of a... Uh, Socrates like, like, uh, like a... Uh, uh, um, uh, Moses and Elijah uh, coming, coming back to earth. Socrates is a janitor at the Harvard Divinity School and begins to have these great conversations with these divinity students. Well, Between Heaven and Hell is the story of C.S. Lewis, John F. Kennedy, and Aldous Huxley, who wrote what book? 1984? Brave New World, that's right. That's right, it was Brave New World. They are, they are meeting in a sidewalk cafe after they have died the same day, which was November the 3rd, maybe? Was that the day that, huh? That John F. Kennedy was shot? Okay. November 22nd of 1963. Uh, they all died that day. And... And Kreeft puts them in a sidewalk cafe on their way to their final destination. And they are having a, a, a great discussion, each from their distinctive viewpoint. And it is marvelous. It's just really, really fun. And he's written a bunch of similar books 
the unaborted Socrates is, an, uh, is another one. Uh, just, just outstanding. Fun, engaging, uh, very accurate in their way in, in, in describing the thought processes of, uh, of these characters. But um, as, as we're getting ready to do all of that uh, next week and think through all of these different blessings and how we can then use these blessings. We'll spend one last week this week thinking about the fundamental principles. And the one that hit me this week, because it is such now, it is such an intrinsic part of our, of our culture, in a way that it never has been before. And we've alluded to it a little bit. Um, and that is envy. That our culture is, is saturated with envy. And how envy destroys. Of course, we've, we've got Shakespearean uh, witness to that. Uh, in a variety of his, his writings, but uh, jealousy being an aspect of envy, of course, Othello is the, is the play that immediately comes to mind when we're thinking about, when we're thinking about that. Um, but as we are living among ourselves, as the body of Christ, to look like Christ to as high a degree as we're able with the Spirit's help. And that's what this is all about, gang. We talked, we've talked about encouraging one another to love and good works. How is it that we live in each other's lives? Not in an accusatory fashion, but in an encouraging fashion, a fashion that's designed to build each other up so that we will yield more and more to what God's doing through the Holy Spirit. That's the deal. This is not a self-help process. This is strong in the strength which God supplies through His beloved Son, as the, as the song goes. So as we're, as we're thinking about that, and then further as we are engaging with our culture, as the opportunities present themselves, this is not, a, not in one sense a manhunt, but it is in another sense a manhunt. That we are called upon in Scripture... Israel was called upon in Scripture, the church of Christ is called upon in Scripture to say to the world, be reconciled to God. That's what we're about. One of, it seems to me, one of the most destructive of the injustices 
that happen in this world is envy. We know that Jesus faced it. We know that's really at the root of what was going on. Why were the Pharisees saying what they're saying? Well, in one sense, it's because they had a view of Scripture that said, this is the way we're supposed to package ourselves before before God. And we are to call Israel to this packaging before God that primarily, interestingly enough, it seems to me, it was an inverted way of looking at things. We are supposed to be distinct so that God will put us back on top. Seems to me to be both directly in Scripture and by implication in Scripture, the idea that sort of undergirded the opposition to Jesus. God wants us back on top. How do we deserve to be there? (laughs) We deserve to be there by being ethnically and ceremonially pure. And Jesus said, that was not what this was all about. That wasn't what it was about back then. What was it about? Deuteronomy 4, 5 through 9. It was about evangelism. You were supposed to look this way, not as a deserving people, but as an undeserving people. You were supposed to look this way because you have been engulfed with, washed over with grace given the ability to see more clearly than the people around you because, yes, nature is a good teacher. As Romans 1 says, but I've gone past that. I have given you everything you need for life and godliness. Ultimately supplying the Spirit to write that. On our, on our hearts. So Jesus faces this opposition, and I'm thinking of 1 Peter 2, where it says, in talking about Christ, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Which is what we've been talking about. And he goes on to, who in his own self bear our, son, our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes we were healed. The church can't look like Christ if we indulge, if we approve, or if we encourage unrighteousness. Beyond sex saturation in our culture, the other main thing, it seems to me, is envy saturation. 
certainly in the political realm, that is a key playing card. You deserve this. I'll give it to you. You deserve this. They have it. You should have it. Whatever that is, whoever they are, seems to me to be a, a sort of an almost an operating principle. And so we have Jesus as the ultimate example. And we have the fruit that has been borne by Jesus as the ultimate example of what happens if we don't allow ourselves to be drenched in envy. What happens if we don't say, I'm going to get them back. Or I'm going to work with somebody else to get them back. Or I'm going to vote for somebody else to get them back. Yeah, John. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I, yeah, and, and that's a great point. I don't, I don't have any particular reason. I think, they, I think we could use the triumvirate, but I do think they're all talking about the same thing in, 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 a, in a sense. My, my point, though, in using envy this morning is the fact that what, it, it, jealousy is just as good, and, and that's why I tied Othello to, to uh, this whole idea, the, you know, the Shakespearean play about jealousy for all intents and purposes, uh, and its destructive nature. But the, I'm just thinking about the flow of Scripture. We began in the garden, and we began with Satan whispering in, in effect, Eve's ear with Adam listening in. It seems to me that Adam is probably standing there listening to the whole conversation. And what is, what's the conversation about? Well, you can be God. Did God really say? You can be God. And the whole downward slope begins there. What happens at Babel? Let's make a name for ourselves. Let's, in effect, assault heaven. And then the reverse of that with Jacob, of God being the one that builds the ladder down to earth that men and angels can, can traverse. And I think about, in Scripture... Those who, when reviled, reviled not. We've got great examples of that in the patriarchs. We've got Abraham and, and Lot. Lot said, Who's, who needs you and your protection? I'm going to cast my tents toward Sodom where the good times roll. And rather than leave Lot to his fate, what did Abram do? 
engaged in something he was, in one sense, ill-equipped for. God has a habit of doing that sort of thing, of taking ill-equipped warriors and winning great battles. And, and so Abraham goes and rescues Lot. I'm thinking about Isaac. What happens with Isaac? And these are all, these, these threads running through Scripture are all in their way examples of not only what God is doing, but what God will do. Have you ever thought about why it was that, that Jacob was grasping Esau's heel when he came out? Why? He came out of, out of the womb, a conniver. He's trying to pull, pull Esau back in. No, that's not what it was. He's a, he's a type. What did God say to the woman after the fall about bruised heels? And here we have Esau, the type of the first Adam, the unfaithful one, unfaithful in so many different ways. And we have the second, the type of the second Adam that follows behind and redeems. And this thread runs through Scripture. You think of Isaac. What, what happened as he was dwelling with Abimelech? Envy and jealousy happened, right? They saw how rich Isaac was getting because God's blessing was with him. And when you hear about God's blessing being with somebody in Scripture... In these kinds of related stories, it's generally because they are acting within God's framework. That's not a name-it-claim-it prosperity gospel kind of thing. That's just simply God revealing that this way leads to life and this way leads to death. So here is, and this happens all through Scripture, think about Think about Joseph. Think about Daniel. You've got those who operate in godly principles that are in effect almost embarrassingly successful compared to this other group. And the other group gets envious, right? And what do they do? They fill in the wells that Abram had, had dug. This is a part of the world where if you have a well, <laughs> that's the means of survival. To me, there's a subtext in that. I'd rather die than you get ahead. I'd rather be poorer as long as you also are poorer in effect. That made no sense except 
that it's the crabs in a bucket kind of scenario. They tell me, I've never observed this, but they tell me if you throw a bunch of crabs in a bucket and one of them starts to climb out, the others will grab it and pull it back, pull it back down. And we certainly know that that happens socially. We know that happens socially. Our friend Nick Brown, who doesn't get to come on Sunday mornings but comes on Wednesday nights, has told us a lot about that. About how as a serious student, he took an awful lot of grief. If he hadn't been an athlete at some level, it would probably have been something that he would have, that he would have succumbed to, he's told me privately. But the point is, they filled in the means of survival. This was not, this was not land with boundaries and, and, and fences and concertina wire. And they had their own wells and, and, and Isaac had some wells. And they wanted to get at Isaac but be okay themselves. That's not what's talked about here. These are communal wells, in effect, that a prudent, godly man had dug. And these ungodly people said, we don't care if we don't have water, as long as we can keep you from out-competing us. We have the same thing then later with Jacob. He goes to work. For Laban, we all know the story of Rachel and Leah. But the, but the story of he, he wants to leave, he says, he says to Laban, Hey, I've done my part. You had nothing when we started. Just go back. What is that, Genesis 30? Yeah. Go back and read that. He says to Laban, it's time for me to leave. I need to get on. I have done way more than right by you. You had nothing when I got here, and now you're a wealthy man. Let me take what's mine and go. And what happens? Envy strikes. Jealousy strikes. He's going he's to take all the best and go away. Look at what's happening, Dad. As the sons say, look what's happening, Dad. He's going to make off with our family stuff. And so what does Laban do? He does what he has continually done since the first contact. <laughs> He tries to cheat him. And you've got the whole story there of Laban who says, we'll make this, we'll make this a fair deal. I'll keep these and you keep these, the ones with the spots and the stripes. Am I remembering that correctly? You keep the ones with the spots and the stripes, and guess what he did? He removed all the sires with the spots and the stripes Three days journey away, if I'm remembering correctly. Three days journey away. He's going to cheat him again out of envy, out of jealousy, out of greed. 
And Jacob, who is wise in the ways of the Lord, does one more workaround. And has a selective breeding process that would allow Laban to do what he did, let him go on with that, but I'll produce a big herd of striped and spotted sheep. And he does. God blesses that process. Did he, with his retinue, because he had a retinue at that point in time, a group, a big group of people, you didn't move in these areas without a big group of people. Did he go and become a sheep rustler and get some of the spotted and striped studs and bring them back? When he was reviled, he didn't revile back. He operated in the principles of God. That is a serious, has serious implications socially. The point of that is that God will prosper righteousness from a standing start or even a substanding start. In other words, God will take people. God will take circumstances where people have been oppressed and suppressed. And if those people operate on godly principles going forward, He will redeem that and their future will not look like their past. We've got to talk about that. We've got to talk about that. Because all of the economic restitution that could be made in a particular set of circumstances, if you could unscramble the eggs and figure out who was supposed to pay and who was supposed to receive, if you could do that, all the economic restitution in the world will not cannot ever overcome a recipient who is operating in ungodliness. It, the results will f- flow through their hands like sand. So that's how That's why when we are talking about social justice, we are talking about a cloth, not individual threads. If you pull on the one individual thread, you will will unravel the cloth. Neither poverty nor riches. Yeah. Need you. 
that's the entire point of this is that a focus on that one thing as the answer for everything is not just unwise it's counterproductive and it's ungodly there's there's no question about that and we've talked about do we address injustice through more injustice you know, because the easy answer to that is let's take away everything above a certain amount from people and it'll help them out. They won't be tempted in that way. Sorry, human nature does not operate that way. That says to fallen recipients exactly what you just said. It'll all be good if we even it all out. The Bible doesn't talk about inequality. It talks about inequity. They're two different things. Jack? That's a great point. Well, and yeah. Sure. But I'm going to challenge something. I'm going to challenge something there. The very words, the 1%, are envious. 
I'm not saying you are being envious and using them. I'm saying it is envy that drives that narrative. And that is wrong. That's wrong. The point is, again, it's not inequality, it's inequity. If there is inequity that causes that, then that's a problem. And there is. There is inequity. There is not as much economic inequity as there is spiritual inequity. As there is behavioral inequity. Why is that? That's because all we talk about is the economic inequity. We don't talk about the other stuff. That's all I'm saying is the cloth is woven together and you can't pull on one string without unraveling the cloth. And the problem is, and this is what we're saying, that's, that's, not, that's not just this. That's so many different things that we've talked about that we don't even think about because we've been marinating in it for generations now. We don't even see how, how these things occur and what they are. We don't even recognize what they are often. And I'm saying that as we look at it, we have to, we have to view it as a whole. We can't, we can't say, I'm going to take from this one and give to this one and never say anything about this is what family looks like, this is what, uh, uh, how do I want to say this, fidelity looks like, not just in family, but in, but in dealings at work, uh, whatever it might be. If we're only talking about the one thing, that's what I see in our culture is we, we will grab one string and pull it. And in pulling it, we're unraveling the cloth. Part of that is because the whole narrative is bound up in this cosmic idea of you shall be as God. Don't, we don't need to listen to God. He is relegated to this realm, and we will determine the rest of it. Let him keep his place. Don't bring that into the discussion. We have to find creative means to even bring God's principles into discussions. And that's going to get harder, I think. The point is that we have an obligation, I think, to look like Jesus, and that is listening to the Father and doing what He says, yielding to the Spirit that He's given us to do that. First and foremost, that's how we evangelize best. And the scripture does indicate that there will be people who will wonder about that and will ask the question, why is it? And then we're to be able to give an answer for the hope that's in us. But we can also talk about what principles lead to life and what principles lead to death. Because there is a way 
That seems good to a man. But that way is death. And we've got a dying culture as a result of operating in a rebellious fashion to the principles God's laid down. Repentance. Any other thoughts? Kids haven't broken out yet, so. Do you see what I'm saying, though? I'm, it's, it's that you can't pick out one aspect of righteousness, commit injustice in order to accomplish that one aspect of righteousness and think that anything is going to turn out okay. 